Welcome back to Finding Relisha. Last time, we talked about how no one knew Relisha was missing for 18 days. And although there are no confirmed sightings of Tatum and Relisha together after March 1st, and no sightings of Relisha at all after that date, one person who did have a sighting of that day is Tatum. In this episode, we're going to chronicle the movements of Khalil Tatum in the time and days right after the last known movements we have for Relisha, and learn a little bit more about Tatum in the process. Mr. Tatum, as he was known to the residents of the D.C. General Family Homeless Shelter, cut a unique figure for a janitor. He dressed sharply, often in polo designer clothing, sometimes in a suit and tie. He kept his burgundy SUV decorated with an oversized Redskins window sticker, and it was kept spotless. And he was given to seemingly random acts of generosity for hundreds of children living in the former hospital campus. Sometimes it was quarters for the shelter's gumball machines, and sometimes it was much more. Khalil Tatum was employed by the Community Partnership for the Prevention of Homelessness, a nonprofit organization that operates the shelter under the contract with the city. A woman by the name of Sue A. Marshall was its executive director, and she confirmed that Tatum did work for the group. But she did not know when he started working at the shelter and declined to comment any further about him. And this is where it starts to get kind of interesting. According to the Washington Post, Khalil Tatum was not always known by that name. You see, court records indicate that Khalil Tatum was previously known as Carl Lee Tatum. And Carl Lee Tatum was arrested and prosecuted several times since the early 1980s in the district and in Virginia on breaking and entering and larceny charges. Most recently, charges in 2003. In recent months, Tatum and his wife lived in an apartment in the Fairlawn section of southeast Washington, not far from Sosa Bridge. Neighbors there described the couple as quiet and unassuming. Seems innocent enough. But then I found out from that same article from the Washington Post that in June of 2013, Tatum was included among several plaintiffs in a lawsuit accusing the city of improperly denying prescription drug coverage to Medicaid recipients. In the lawsuit filed in federal court in the district, Tatum was said to be without steady employment. And you guys keep in mind, this is 2013. Relisha went missing 2014. She had already been living at the shelter for a year at this point. So Tatum did have a job. He had steady employment. And not only was that one of the claims in this lawsuit, but the other claim was that he relies on income from working odd jobs to pay for his living expenses. So are we living above our means and we need odd jobs? And our steady employment that we're said to be without isn't really cutting the buck for everything we need or think we need? There's definitely something going on here, which is why I wanted to point it out. The lawsuit also said that Tatum needs medication to treat high blood pressure and had been on Medicaid since January of 2012. The lawsuit listed an address for Tatum 
at the Cedar Heights Apartments in Anacostia. When this apartment got a visit, a woman came to the door. And she actually declined to comment on Tatum or his link to the missing Relisha Rudd. So why was this apartment listed? I mean, was it somewhere he used to live? And shouldn't it have been changed in a court of law? I have so many questions about this apartment and everything else, but I've got to have tunnel vision because if I allow myself to start questioning everything that I'm reading to you, I will be going down so many rabbit holes that it will be impossible to climb out. And that's what this case does to you. It makes you question everything. I'm telling you all of this about Tatum because I want you to know that while he may have seemed quiet and unassuming, there was still something very off about him. So off, in fact, that the day after Relisha was seen alive, Khalil Tatum was seen purchasing a carton of 42-gallon contractor trash bags at a Home Depot. In addition to that, he was also noted as purchasing a shovel and lye. After purchasing these items, Khalil Tatum was spotted in D.C. and was seen near Kenilworth Aquatic Gardens. And for those of you guys who aren't from the D.C. area, this is like a major, like, huge, expansive park area. So, what does a man need a carton of 42-gallon contractor trash bags, a shovel, and lie for at a park? If you're like me, though, at this point, I was wondering what the heck lie was and why it was such a big deal. So I'm sure you are, too. And I'll tell you why. You see, lie is an alkaline chemical that's known for its caustic nature. When working with it, the lie can damage surfaces that it comes into contact with, including your skin. In fact, it's so caustic that people wear protective gloves when working with it. Lye is sodium hydroxide, and it comes in liquid form, and it comes as flakes or as crystals. Sodium hydroxide comes into being when soda, a.k.a. sodium carbonate, and lime, a.k.a. calcium hydroxide, come together and cause a chemical reaction. Lye has a vast majority of uses as well. Back before you could just like go to your local store and buy some lye in a bottle, people used to make it from raw materials. They used it for tanning hides and making soap. Lye can be dangerous though, as again, it is extremely corrosive. That is why it is of importance to this case. The chemical lye can be used to execute some more nefarious tasks as well. I mean... You can go from making soap to what people in the mortuary world call biocremation. And surprisingly enough, a legal company actually does this. Like, it's a real legal thing, if done correctly. The company is BioResponse Solutions. And this company makes alkaline hydrolysis machines for human disposal. So, I had to do some digging for this one to figure out what the heck this even was. And I found an interview that this company did with A&E on their process. And it goes a little something like this. Quote, the deceased is placed into a stainless steel vessel. The alkali is added. 
or, you know, AKA potassium hydroxide. The system fills with water and heats the solution between 200 and 302 degrees Fahrenheit. Then some kind of mechanism is needed to create a gentle flow of water, similar to that of like a creek or a stream. So a recirculating pump or a physical stirrer, much like a mixer, it would take a lot more time if the body just sat. So that's where this mixer comes into play. It basically circulates that solution until complete decomposition is reached. And according to Bioresponse Solution, a complete process takes about 285 gallons. So, again, if you're like me, I know you're wondering, all right, so what happens to whatever remains of the body after this process? Luckily, the same interview provided an answer for that, too. Of humans, the company said, we're made up of proteins, fat, and 65% water. When exposed to extremely alkalinic solutions, water molecules dissociate into hydrogen and hydroxide molecules. Proteins are broken down into their smallest building block known as amino acids. Carbohydrates are then clipped. Our DNA and RNA are completely hydrolyzed. And they are clipped to the most basic building blocks. All pathogens are destroyed. Fats are even turned into soap. Supposedly, there are skeletal remains as well. And the remains resemble the skeleton and are composed of calcium phosphate. But I really don't like the idea of being turned into soap. I hope not everything is turned into soap, but I really feel like I'm going to start reading my ingredients on my soap bottles a lot better after this. Regardless, this is how it can be done legally. However, like most things in life, we have loopholes. The criminal applications of the use of lie. It is said that when you break a body down with lye, there's no DNA and no RNA. It all gets clipped. Everything that is dissolved into the water is broken down as far as it can be broke down. Think about it. Why else would he need lye? I mean, I don't really see Khalil Tatum as the type to have a hobby making homemade soaps. I mean, he could be. But from everything I've read about it, I don't really see that as a possibility. But again, it's not damning enough. Anyone can purchase lye. It's just another curious aspect in an otherwise confusing case. Another curiously confusing aspect is that on March 19th, 2014, Relisha called her grandmother twice while with Tatum. She told her all about their plans and that she was going to spend time with Tatum's granddaughter. At the time, Melissa had no idea Relisha had been absent from school or was even missing at all. Her being missed at the shelter didn't come about until the school, her school brought it, you know, brought it to their attention that Relisha missed 30 days of school with Relisha. And see, I didn't even know that she was missing that, that many days of school. And I was going out to the shelter taking her brothers to school. And every time I would get her three brothers, I would say, Shamika, with uh, Relisha? Oh, mom, she upstairs. She not feeling good. Okay, boom. Give her a kiss. Tell her I love her. You see what I'm saying? I never mm -hmm. thought nothing of it. 
school social worker had the meeting and he was asking uh Mika where's religion. Only thing Mika kept saying she with her godfather. See, I'm the one who sold them the guy's name. I'm the one who told them who the guy was. I said, no, she's with Khalil Taylor. And I'm the one that gave them his phone number because Mika had put it in my phone. Okay. So, by me doing that, once the social worker showed up at school, that's when we don't know how long she had been missing prior to the social worker showing up at the school. I'm going to be honest. No, I did not know anything was going on until they came to my home. The way that they came to my home is how I realized and found out that it was something wrong. Because when the police first pulled up outside of my building, I I honestly went downstairs to find out why they was outside. I didn't care what the reason was. I wanted to know what was going on. I was a nosy type uh, for mm-hmm. my building because... It's been so much going on. I never knew when they was coming to my unit or someone else. So it was like I was always in the window to find out, and that's how I found out because I happened to be in the window, and then I went downstairs, and they said they was looking for Unit 301, which is my unit, and, you know, they having to start talking to me about her and questioning me on where her whereabouts was. It was later brought to my attention that also on the same day, Relisha's mother, Shamika, had posted a video of Relisha at her Aunt Ashley's home that same day. Like we chilling at Aunt Ashley's house. We chilling at Aunt Ashley's house. Say hi, Instagram. When the video was unearthed, it threw a curve into the timeline of the case. When was Relisha truly last seen? Was it with Tatum? Was it on this night with family members? Of course, I went to the family and asked. And after speaking with Melissa, Relisha's grandmother, she helped clarify a few things about this video and the time in which it was posted. In the background, you hear her mother saying, say hi, say hello, Instagram. That was at Ashley's house. That, but that, that video was made before uh, March 19th. She posted it on March 19th. A lot of stuff that Shamika posted after baby girl had went missing mm-hmm. to, to to try to make it seem like I was lying. When she posted that video was when I had said I had spoke with her daughter twice that day on March the 19th. That video was made in Ashley's house. I was there when that video was made, but you could not see me. I was sitting in Ashley's dining room. Did Shamika make it on her phone? Yeah. She recorded on her one of her old phones that she don't have no more. As it would turn out, the video was merely only posted on that day. It was not filmed that day. But we do know Relisha called and spoke to her grandmother that day. I spoke with her on March the 19th by phone. After that. To Relisha, Relisha on the 19th? Relisha. Yeah, I talked to Relisha and Taylor. She had called the day that he fled with her. He was supposed to board her to me and never showed up. So we don't know what happened. Social worker went to the school. That's when he fled with her. And what day was this? I'm sorry. March the 19th, 2014. Me and Ashley, me and Ashley spoke with her by way of cell phone. Tatum had called 
and me and Ashley spoke for him and Melissa twice on the 19th, once in the morning and once around lunchtime. Melissa was happy. She was telling me all about the visit, uh, uh, how her and uh, Tatum's uh, granddaughter got in the kitchen and cooked breakfast and and they was going to the mall to go do some shopping and all this. She was happy. So, you know, I said, okay. So by her telling me what she cooked, so I said, well, Melissa, that sounds good. You know, did the smoke detector go off? She said, no, Nana, I didn't set the house on fire, no fire truck, no smoke detector. Everything was good. Say, good job. That's how our conversation went. So then she said, well, I'm going to call you back. Cause I'm getting ready to go to the mall. I'm getting ready to go get me some new shoes and some other stuff she said she was going to get. When she called, when they called again, they was getting ready to leave out to go to the mall. He was supposed to board it to me when they came back from the mall. And whatever, like I said, whatever happened to make him flee with her on the 19th happened when the, uh, Mr. Workman from Payne Elementary School showed up at that shelter. Okay. That's when, that's when he took off with religion. Was when the school social worker showed up at that at DC General Shelter. Yeah. And right after Mr. Workman showed up, that's when Tatum fled with religion. And from the first to the nineteenth of March, she was staying with him. She was with him from yeah. He she was with him from the first up until the nineteenth. Because I talked to her on the nineteenth. Mm-hmm. After that, I don't know what happened. At this point, the timeline of the investigation into Relisha's disappearance and Tatum's life begin to intermingle. March 19, 2014. D.C. police launch a missing persons investigation. But I can tell you something that happened that was real, real strange. Me, my daughter's boyfriend, and a friend of the family took and put a harness on the dog that Relisha had been around a whole lot. And the dog let us down to the house there in the old Minnesota, off of Minnesota Avenue. When we got up the street from the house, there was two police officers standing in front of the building knocking on the door. Tatum's wife locked out the door, passed them two police officers, got in her car, pulled off, and she was dead. And I'm thinking that she was able to get past them because they probably didn't have a photo of her. So they didn't know exactly who they was after. All they knew was it was a woman. But three of us stood about 50 feet away from them and watched this woman walk past them and get in her car at 9 39 p.m an officer calls tatum's cell phone but it goes straight to voicemail and is never reactivated again at 10 4 p.m tatum checks into room 132 of the red roof inn in oxen hill maryland and he is seen with four people none of them police say is relisha Less than an hour later, three people leave. At 5.40 a.m., one person returns to the motel and sees Tatum's wife, Andrea Tatum, lying on the bed. He's not allowed inside, and he tells police that in the last month, he helped Tatum do internet searches for a handgun and download images on an Apple iPad. It was likely that Andrea Tatum never saw the bullet coming. Police officers had been searching for Alicia when they arrived at room 132. It was here in this Maryland Red Roof Inn on the first day of spring that they found Andrea Tatum inside. 
The 51-year-old laid face down on the bed with her petite, 126-pound body bearing no signs of a struggle. No bruises, no cuts, nothing. All of this came from an autopsy report obtained by the Washington Post. Her long artificial nails were painted purple and blue, and they remained intact. Now, depending on where you get your nails done and how long they've been on at any given time, sometimes some things can pop off. And if I'm struggling, because you're about to shoot me, I I feel like my nails will probably be popping off. So the fact that hers remained intact is curious. Not only that, the barrel of a gun had been placed behind her left ear and a bullet tore through her skull into her brain and out a quarter inch hole in front of her right ear. The man who pulled the trigger, police and ballistic tests say was her husband of more than two decades, Khalil Tatum. More than five months after Relisha went missing, the autopsy report, along with additional information from police and interviews with those who knew the Tatums, offered a more penetrating view into a case that has been shrouded in unknowns. You never know what's going on behind closed doors. Because behind the closed doors in which the quiet, unassuming couple lived, there were signs of discord. Court records show that Khalil Tatum had filed for divorce in February. And Andrea Tatum's daughter later told police that her mother had considered leaving him. But others who knew the two described them as caring people who had struggled with poverty, drug addiction, and incarceration, but overall seemed stronger together. So, what caused Khalil to snap? Sure, he had run-ins with the law in the past, but none of these charges were violent offenses. He had no history of being a violent person. To randomly murder someone you love does not align with the crimes he had been charged with in the past. Something happened. Who were the others that went to the hotel room? Do we even know anything about them? Have they been cleared? Most importantly, where's Relisha Rudd in all of this and what has Tatum done with her at this point? Khalil Tatum's nephew, Deshaun, actually gave a statement saying that when he saw his uncle's face on the news, he assumed that Khalil Tatum was the victim of a crime, not the perpetrator. Even now, he doesn't believe that his uncle is the kidnapper or killer portrayed by police. Deshaun said, quote, If anything, my uncle took care of the little girl. It was like she was his own daughter, end quote. Deshaun still believes that the girl's family handed her over to him because they couldn't take care of her themselves. The clips you're about to hear come from another one of Tatum's nephews, a nephew by the name of Andre. Uh, I would describe my uncle as a caring man. Um, Anything that you needed, he would give to you. Um, he's not what people portray him on the news as being as this monster who kidnaps this little girl. He's a pretty nice man, and if you ever had the pleasure of knowing him, he'll touch your life. Now, this is his own beliefs. I'm just trying to present both sides to you. Court records indicate that when a social worker interviewed Relisha's mother, After her daughter had missed a month of school, she described Khalil Tatum as godfather to the little girl and didn't want to file a missing persons report. Deshaun even referred to the same video from the Holiday Inn 
that we previously spoke about in other episodes where Relisha and Tatum are walking together. He says that she is casually walking down the hall next to him, seemingly unafraid in the video. And that much is true. Like I said, if you didn't know the context of that video, it could easily look like a grandfather who took his granddaughter out shopping for the day and they were coming back to the hotel. Relisha was last seen days later at a hotel across the street, according to law enforcement sources. On March 1st, Relisha walked past the fountain in front of the Days Inn on New York Avenue, along the cream-colored tile in the lobby and into a room with Tatum. It's unclear whether she ever walked out, though. So, the question remains as to where is Relisha? And what made Tatum snap? A woman by the name of Edna Young and her son, Gerald Wills, added another twist to the labyrinth this case was now becoming. Gerald Wills had lived with Andrea Tatum during the long years when Khalil was in prison and described her as the love of his life. He was the one that got the call that night. During the moments of that phone call, their life, as well as so many others, shifted forever. They were stunned and confused as to how this even happened. Then, in a brief cryptic email regarding Andrea, her boss, Robert Siegel, said that she loved both Khalil Tatum and Wills. She was loved and hated by many people, honest, and loved her family. Gerald Wills said he can't help but feel like he failed Andrea. In the past decade, he had watched Andrea embrace sobriety and her role as a grandmother. In the past, she had talked about divorcing Tatum, but he believes that she stayed with him because Narcotics Anonymous teaches people to make amends. In regards to Khalil, Gerald Wills said, quote, he couldn't have loved her because look what he did, end quote. When Gerald was asked about Relisha, he says that he never saw Tatum or Andrea with Relisha, but he does vaguely recall Andrea once mentioning a little girl being at her house. Gerald stated his opinion, quote, I think she found out something. That's why he did it. He thought she was going to tell, end quote. So what did Relisha find out? Or was it Andrea who found something out? Could the need to keep a secret so badly be worth the life of someone else and an unknown fate for an innocent child? Sadly, these are questions that we may never get the answer to because now Tatum was on the run. At 8.01 a.m., Prince George County's police department received a request from D.C. police to help with the missing child. They then learned that Tatum might be driving a maroon 2007 Chevrolet Trailblazer. This trailblazer would also be embellished on the back with a Washington Redskins emblem. Police said the vehicle was seen parked outside room 132 of the Red Roof Inn, the room where Andrea was found. Police then entered the room. Khalil was nowhere in sight. In order to try and track Khalil Tatum down, police put out an alert for another vehicle, a white GMC truck. And that truck actually ended up being abandoned in Hyattsville. It was at this point Tatum was charged in a warrant with murder in connection with the killing. By March 24th of 2014, D.C. police and the FBI released additional photos of Relisha and another of Tatum. The hunt for Relisha has now stretched all the way from Pennsylvania to Richmond. 
The following day, on March 25th of 2014, the FBI posted a $25,000 reward for the return of Relisha, and police in Prince George's posed a separate $25,000 reward for information leading to Tatum's arrest in the killing. On March 27, 2014, the D.C. Chief of Police released a statement that filled the hearts of those close to this case with dread. Police Chief Kathy Lanier announced that the search for Alicia Rudd had now become a recovery mission, signaling that law enforcement authorities did not believe that Alicia Rudd would be found alive. Officers and federal agents with cadaver dogs combed through the 700-acre park along the Anacostia River during a 10-hour search. While police had not given up on finding Relisha alive, the police chief said that they also were having to face the brutal reality that Tatum may have killed Relisha too. D.C. police wouldn't give any reason as to why they did not believe Relisha to be alive. The only thing they would say is that they were acting based off of a tip. Still, Tatum remained on the run with a $25,000 reward on his head and alerts having been issued from Pennsylvania, now all the way down to Florida. Police decided on concentrating most heavily on the Richmond, Virginia, and Atlanta, Georgia areas. Khalil Tatum was known to have family out in Atlanta, so it wasn't a long shot to assume he might try to seek asylum with them. It's impossible to think that this case can get any more twisted and confusing than it already has, but it surely was about to. On March 31st, 2014, during an extensive search for Relisha at the Kenilworth Park and Aquatic Gardens, a body was found. Search crews found the body of an adult male believed to be Khalil Tatum, the man accused of kidnapping the eight-year-old girl. The lingering and critical question tonight, where is Relisha? Officials cautioned that they had not yet positively identified the body but that they believed it to be that of Khalil Tatum. By April 1st, 2014, the body had positively been identified as belonging to Khalil Tatum, the man wanted for the abduction of Relisha Rudd. While it looks like a murder-suicide through and through, some people close to the investigation, even Relisha's own mother has said in different interviews that she believes it was a cover-up. With this whole Tatum situation and his, his death, there's a cover-up, some form, shape, and fashion. And my belief is that my daughter is still alive out here somewhere. I think that he was into something that she got caught up in. Somebody else. Some, it's other people out here. It's somebody else tied up with this, involved in this relationship case say that for years to come. It's other people involved. We just don't know who. A wise person once told me, dead men may tell no tales, but their bodies will. Tatum's body told us for a fact he was the one to kill himself with a single gunshot wound. I have heard several different versions of how his body was found, how many gunshot wounds were present, etc. But I have gone through all of my official contacts, and they all tell me that it is officially ruled that Khalil Malik Tatum died of a single self-inflicted gunshot wound. But that begs the question as to what happened that was so bad that he killed both himself and his wife. What did they know?
Or what did they do that would cause such a violent, dramatic act? And what does Shamika think's being covered up? And by who? And again, most importantly, where is Relisha in all of this? This case is a beast of a whole different kind. It's one that has left seasoned investigators scratching their heads and a nation watching, waiting, hoping, and praying that one day, some way, somehow, someone will tell us what they know. Next time on Finding Relisha. Next time on Finding Relisha, we will explore the extensive searches that have taken place to attempt to locate Relisha. We will talk about the Steve Wilkos show, and we will talk about the family discord that resulted from this case. Every day, people have their voices silenced by senseless acts. Sometimes they just go missing and are never found. Sometimes we find them years later, but we still don't know what happened. And if we do know what happened, how do we catch a killer all these years later? I'm your host, Megan, and I am here to give a voice back to the voiceless. Those who have had their voices silenced far too soon by senseless acts. Each season, we will take a deep investigative dive into a new case and hopefully one by one, give a voice back to the voiceless. If you have any information on Relisha at all, or even think that there is a possibility that you might, please reach out to us. Call Metro PD at 202-727-9099 or you can send a text to the anonymous line at 50411. You may also contact the FBI at 1-800-CALL-FBI. You may also dial 1-800-THE-LOST. If you do not wish to contact law enforcement directly, please reach out by dialing non-law enforcement at 202-491-2327.